This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. You are so going to love this conversation that I had with Dr. Nigel Girgra. He is this incredible force for good who is leading efforts within Oshner Healthcare in New Orleans to make well-being a priority in the workplace for their physicians and their advanced practice providers. And we had such an incredible conversation. He is the epitome of strength and vulnerability in a leader, which can be hard to do, particularly in medicine, but it's applicable for all workplaces. And wait till you hear how he describes that we are in a human energy crisis and some really fantastic steps that they have taken to normalize and destigmatize mental health and really support resiliency and well-being amongst their employees. I think there's a ton that we can learn from it regardless of your industry. And if you take nothing else away from the conversation, wait till you hear about how he views showing up as a vulnerable leader and the benefits that it has. All right. So Nigel, I am just so excited to finally be talking to you. You know, I do a ton of work in healthcare and with physicians. And let's just be honest, we know that with all that the world has thrown at us, that not just in healthcare, but especially in healthcare, we know that mental and emotional well being are suffering for so many people. And that we also know that stress and burnout are increasing at a record pace, especially for people in healthcare. So I would love it if we would just start out by you telling me how you became interested in the importance of looking more intentionally at burnout. I can tell you where I thought it began. And then I think it, as I've been in this work, I'm, I'm starting to understand. For me, I, I think the story starts in 2013. I went back to Toronto for my med school reunion and learned that a friend of mine, Craig, uh, wasn't there. Craig was a very famous prominent surgeon in Canada. And I found out in the months earlier, earlier that he had unfortunately taken his life. And because he was famous, he had a wiki page. You could Google him and was curious. And I just Googled a bit about Craig. And it was really disturbing. It seemed to have all the disturbing elements of burnout. Alcoholism back to 2009, probably earlier than that. Uh, then the loss of his medical license, privileges at hospitals, criminal court case and tampering with witnesses. And then what was most shocking, Rosie, was this description of a high-speed police chase across rural Ontario that just seemed unimaginable. So I was stunned. I was deeply affected. He was a kind, you know, compassionate, funny individual that I matriculated to med school with. And I think I just became interested in, in the subject for all the reasons that a friend would. And as I read more and more about it, it just seemed like there was a real moral and professional case to address. Healthcare, I guess like some other industries, really draws on what we call, Rosie, elite professionals. And, and these individuals are usually characterized by being deeply driven, highly conscientious, uh, but also prone to guilt and self-doubt. And honestly, there's a terrific upside to this. So these are individuals that generally study harder, they're there for their patients 24-7, they're fastidious, 
but there is also a downside. They're uh, more predisposed to burnout, guilt about self-care, self-compassion. And then you wonder, is it a nature thing or is it a nurture thing? We know, Rosie, that well-being, at least in healthcare, drives better patient experience. It's associated with uh, superior quality and safety outcomes, increased discretionary effort, decreased turnover, and improved overall financial performance. It's probably the leading quality indicator that drives all the other good things that a healthcare system would like. So, you know, that informal interest evolved into a, a number of different roles, which led to the, the position I have currently, which is a more formal role uh, as chief wellness officer, supervising the overall professional well-being strategy. And I'll, I'll tell you, that strategy uh, was developed pre-pandemic, heavily focused around practice efficiency, organizational culture. Clearly, when the pandemic hit, we had to adapt, we had to pivot, we had to go down Maslow's hierarchy of needs and start thinking about crisis support and then resilience, and then mental health. So that's where it started for me, Rosie. I love that. Not that it started from a tragedy, but that you're really taking something and leaning into curiosity and saying, gosh, why is that? And, and what can I learn about that? When tough things happen or when tragic things happen, there's always an opportunity to look at what is a learning, right? And you see so many foundations and so many activists, it's born out of pain, it's born out of struggle, it's born out of tragedy. No good idea starts with someone just thinking what they've always thought before. It's being curious, it's, it's leaning in. You talked about really moving down Maslow's hierarchy of needs to crisis and then going into resiliency. And one of the things that I've been struck by um, in our conversations leading up to this was and hear a lot about needing to have more support for mental and emotional well-being, in particular resilience. And so often resilience just gets put on the individual. It's the individual's responsibility. It's the individual. It's the, I don't know if it's the United States or the Western, strap yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever the saying is, but you have a really interesting perspective of looking at resilience, not just as an individual issue or at an individual level, but really looking at it from a systems issue. Can you say more about that? There is a, an expression, and I, I'm going to get it wrong, but it goes something like, while burnout is manifested in the individuals, the, the drivers of it are clearly at, at the system level. And it, while individuals must take ownership in promoting their own resilience and, and well-being, there, there has to be an organizational culture and systems in place that create an environment where this is possible. Somebody, I, I remember talking to somebody last year and they said that in our era, we're in a human energy crisis. So we're, there is a uh, mismatch between energy demand and our energy supply. I think anybody like professional athletes would tell you that Stress is good, right? You, whether you're a marathon runner or a football player, you have to stress yourself. But they also get that recovery is equally important. And football's played on Sundays, but healthcare has become increasingly 24-7. The push, the appropriate push for consumerism, greater access to care. And so there have to be some systems in place to help individuals manage the four dimensions of their energy tank. And those four dimensions are first the mental dimension. And that's, I look at that as being able to be in the moment 
not ruminating about the past, not anxious about the future. So mental and then physical. And that's obvious. Rest, nutrition, activity, exercise. The emotional component. So connecting with family, friends, loved ones, even colleagues and promoting that. And then, of course, spiritual. And by that, not necessarily religious, but being able to connect with a higher purpose. So we've asked ourselves, and I think organizations have to ask themselves, are you an organization that supports both the macro recovery, promote vacations, evenings off, weekends, where you're not emailing, calling, texting your healthcare workers, but not just macro recovery. Are you intentional about inserting micro recovery into the workday? So breaks, lunches, creating decompression zones. Are you an organization that supports uh, healthy nutrition, exercise, things like that? And then lastly, and I think this should be relatively easy for organizations in healthcare, are you able to connect your employees with a higher purpose? And so I, I mentioned pre-pandemic. I, I recognize that resilience was important. I didn't, I was intentional about not uh, leading with that because I did not want at least our physicians and nurses to think that it was the organization saying, as you were alluding to, if you just eat better and do some yoga, you're going to be fine. Now, clearly the pandemic changed that, that discussion. I, I was impressed with what sort of a thirst there was for resilience offering. We very quickly had to look into sort of digital mindfulness offerings. And we also created sort of a series. I think that series is up to about 24 sort of TED Talk like YouTube videos. That was our strategy. It was a quick reaction to the pandemic. You know, those are some of the things that we're doing. I love that. And obviously, we know that healthcare has taken a huge licking, if you will, be, because of the nature of the pandemic. But really, a lot of the things that you're describing for anyone listening that's not in healthcare are applicable for so many organizations. I think about all the data of how connected we are and how much I think of leaders I coach in other industries that are on their phone 24 seven and aren't putting it down in the evenings when they're with their families and are working through lunch breaks or people that are working remotely rather than going into a uh, office sometimes are working more hours because they can so they're not getting those those micro breaks or those micro recoveries that you talked about during the day as well as the macro that people are like oh I can't unplug for vacation because it's going to be worse when I come back I'm going to have a thousand emails it's just easier to check in every day and it's, you're missing the point and so I think we have a bigger issue of I love how you're looking at this because in my mind, there's a twofold issue. There's the individual of our own conditioning and mindset and stories we tell ourselves that has us feel like either no one else can do it or we're irreplaceable or we have to be in control or we have to be responsive or whatever it is that has us feel like we can't set a boundary for ourselves. And then there's the organizational cultural level which is, yeah, what are the systems? What are the leadership practices? What is the underlying attitude and mindset that people are absorbing that tells them whether or not it's safe, accepted, and supported to take care of yourself and let yourself be whole? You're alluding to something I know, and I'm sure you agree is very important, is uh, what are the sort of leadership behavioral norms? It's one thing to say, you guys have to decompress, have a great weekend. But are you a leader that is calling those that report to you? Are you issuing deadlines in the evening or, or things like that? So you have to be 
to the extent possible, and this is challenging in healthcare, consistent as a, a leadership team. And I do think uh, for many executives, they've been timid to tackle on the concept of well-being because it's a fuzzier space than many other things. But if you do this well, and there's always <laughs> a tremendous opportunity to do this better, this should be a terrific competitive advantage in terms of recruiting and retaining workforce. So in talking about the systems level, so I love the four dimensions uh, of energy and how you look at it. From a systems perspective, can you speak a little bit about how you've gone about supporting resilience and what are some of the changes that you've made organizationally to help with resilience and, and mental health support as well? We've tried to teach some of the leadership behavioral norms that, that I was talking about. We are creating spaces where physicians can gather for lunch and encouraging that. And this was a little tough to do during the, certainly the earlier era of social distancing, but developing de decompression zones where there are actual opportunities to engage in, in mindfulness activities with our benefits team, certainly a, a benefits platform that promotes physical activity really looking at what sort of nutrition we're serving in the cafeterias. I think those are some of the sort of system level things. Also, this idea of shared accountability, where are all folks in your organization, arms locked, rowing in the same direction? Are our goal grids, our incentive grids, looking at well-being? Is the CFO as interested in well-being as the department chair is interested in the financial performance and accountable? for the financial performance of the departments. That's fantastic. And one of the things that you also mentioned in one of our previous conversations that I think is so important is that if we're going to change leadership behaviors, if we're going to change leadership norms, if we're going to you know, have places where people feel like they're supported, they can take these breaks, all those. One of the things that I, I recall you talking about is that really about destigmatizing and changing leadership communication norms around mental health. Because I think what, what I find is whether someone's in healthcare or not, there's this thought of, oh, my team member might be struggling, but oh, that's not, not my place to get involved, or I don't know what to do, or they'll just do a almost a quiet under the table, here's the EAP number type of thing. So can you talk about a little bit about how you've done some work to really destigmatize that? Because I think people leaders who are in formal people leadership roles have such a responsibility to pay attention to what's happening. And if it's stigmatized or they don't know how to talk about it, that's another piece of the puzzle that I think we overlook. Yeah. And, and just stating the obvious, I think only, I guess maybe the military, I'm comparing healthcare to other sectors and in the workplace. I think those are probably the two areas where mental health has been probably stigmatized the most in terms of the, the medical culture. Obviously we tell our physicians that please be forthcoming if you're having issues with substance abuse or depression. And yet every year when we renew our licenses, there are other questions about that. When we recredential at our organizations, there are questions about that. I was in Toronto, Rosie, for SARS-1, which was back in 2002, 2003. And SARS-1 was like, like a millionth of what the pandemic, the COVID pandemic has been, but there were very well studied long-term mental health sequelae in terms of frontline healthcare workers in Toronto. It really changed a few things, and that was how leaders communicate with, with those that 
report to them. I remember our physician in chief being very open about his anxiety during SARS-1. And it led to, I think, some boards and agencies re-looking at questions that they're asking physicians. Then you get back to me. In the, the first summer of the pandemic, I really, really found myself languishing. And I know Adam Grant has talked about this term languishing, which he calls it the neglected middle child of mental health. And in the summer of 2020, I found myself really struggling, out of flow, languishing. And I recognize the triggers every year. July represents the anniversary uh, of the death of uh, one of my sons. There are triggers every summer, but usually I'm able to develop compensatory mechanisms and how to sort of get over that. Those compensatory mechanisms are things like going back to Canada, hanging out with friends and loved ones for a few weeks in the summer. I had a significant knee injury. I've enjoyed excellent health, but that had taken away from my ability to exercise that summer. And I just thought things were spiraling out of control. And I eventually reached out for help and it really did help. But Rosie, my my sort of aha moment was that everybody has some sort of version of that story. And I have a quarterly message that goes out, an open letter. And honestly, before that summer, it was a sort of a sterile letter with a report out on all the great things that we were doing. But in those months, I I sent an open letter to all 34,000 employees. And that letter uh, was personal. It was my story. And I also discussed more broadly the stigma of mental health and healthcare. And I just bring that up because I think it underscores the importance of changing leadership behavioral norms. That letter uh, was by far the most engaged letter, open letter, long emails, replies, people saying they were finally going to seek help. I remember one individual reaching out to me, telling me that he'd lost his home early in the pandemic and that he was sleeping in his car and we were able to connect that individual with the right support. So it really seemed to strike a nerve. And I don't think I know Brenny Brown or her work as well as you do, but it, it goes back to the this concept of trust doesn't just happen and then lead to vulnerability. It's the reverse of that. Vulnerability comes first, and then you develop trust with, with those that you, you work with. Interest in burnout began, and as I reflected, it goes back even further, I think, to 1993, when I was a second-year resident in Toronto, medical resident. And at least in Canada, being a second-year medical resident, that was the highest stress year. It's the highest knowledge to responsibility ratio. I found myself anxious. My grandfather died during a very stressful rotation. And I thought this anxiety was going to be a career stopper. I thought this is it. And eventually I mustered up the, the courage to go speak to my program director. And he was wonderful. He was compassionate. He was discreet. He got me help. And actually, uh, a year later, he asked me to be the chief medical resident um, at the Toronto General Hospital. So I I just bring that up, that reaching out for help doesn't have to be a a career stopper. It can be an opportunity to build resilience. And, And so I tell you that, but my story has helped shape, I think, our organizational approach to supporting the mental health of our employees. And I I think 
there's basically four components to that. One is just raising awareness and educating folks. Secondly, I think you have to measure mental health, not just burnout. You have to measure PTSD. You have to measure depression because that's the only way you're going to know if you're improving things. The third component is what we were just talking about, and that's destigmatizing the conversation. Another thing that we're doing, Rosie, is we're launching a uh, resource group in our organization around mental health. But I think the idea behind this is that also sends a message to folks that it's okay to talk about this. And then lastly, we've changed our approach to different offerings around mental health. So what I would hear when I rounded and talked to people was, it's great to have an EAP program. It's great to have a great behavioral health service line. But ideally, we shouldn't let things bubble up to that sort of crisis. And how do you get upstream a little bit? I heard this term from several about this concept of opt-out versus opt-in. So by opt-out, how do we make these services just part of the normal part of being an employee at Oshner rather than you have to opt in? So we've been experimenting. We've piloted a few things, partnering with different mental health startups. And so the idea is to really try and take the this sort of stigma and see if more anonymous offerings will be more widely received. So those are some of the things that we're doing at Oshner. I love that on so many levels. And one of the things I want to circle back to when you were talking about sharing your story and that it was a different communication and it was the most open and people came back. And what I'm really struck by that is going back to Brene Brown, that vulnerability is this funny thing because it feels like weakness in us. And it's the last thing we typically want to show people, but it's actually the first thing that we look for in others. And it is courage. She always says there is no courage without vulnerability. And what I so appreciate about what you did is you modeled vulnerability. You model, It was hugely courageous to do that. And then what it did is it created a safe space and normalized for other people to speak up. And I think so often people who are in formal people leadership roles, especially they, I hear this all the time when I'm coaching leaders, they feel like they need to be this pillar of strength or that they can't show any level of concern or they can't show any weakness. And what happens is it's actually the opposite, that people feel like either they're arrogant or that they are disconnected or they're not relatable. And yet when we let our own humanity and let our own authenticity show, the natural response for most people is empathy and is connection. And you talked about that dance, that trust and vulnerability are a dance. You trust a little, you are more vulnerable, you build more trust and, and it just goes from there. So I just want to say like kudos and I so appreciate it because I can think of many leaders in healthcare and not that they send out those typical messages like, oh, appreciate all you do. And we've had a great, despite the challenges, we've had a great month or a great quarter and it's the raw and it comes across as disingenuous and it's like we're struggling and you're just like you're whitewashing over or you're painting over what's really going on. I, I will say, though, and I think you would agree, vulnerability has to have boundaries. So you can't just be coming out every week because that doesn't get received as well. And I think there has to be some agenda when you're being vulnerable. I hate using the word agenda, but you have to think about what are you trying to accomplish with that? communication. And for me, it was the hope that people would come forward. 
I, I do think that vulnerability, I absolutely agree with you, is so important, but you have to also think about some degree of boundary setting and what you want to accomplish when you are sharing a lot of yourself. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the things that we teach in the Dare to Lead curriculum is really what you said is, first of all, vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. That's oversharing. And so we always have to have those boundaries. It's not just, yeah, put it all out there. That's not what vulnerability is. And the second thing that you shared that I appreciate too is we talk about it's does the vulnerability, what's the intention behind it? And does the vulnerability serve the work? So meaning to your point, like your intention was you wanted to normalize stuff or have more people come forward. So then that informs what you share. It's not, oh, I'm going to just share whatever's going on in my life without boundaries because I want sympathy. So yeah, it's what's the intention of the sharing. It needs to be authentic, but it's, is this serving the work or is this either me trying to get attention or me trying to get sympathy? So I I think those are two really important points. When we talk about showing up as a courageous leader and really the power of vulnerability, we have to understand what vulnerability is and what vulnerability isn't. I agree with you. That also extends not just to uh, large communications, one-on-one meetings with your direct reports. You go to a direct report and tell them that you're struggling with something and you think they can do a better job, you know, something at work. That's, you're going to, that's a terrific way to engage that employee. When they say that, see that their leader doesn't understand the financial component of this business plan, or I think historically many leaders feel that they have to show their folks that they're omnipotent and omniscient. And that clearly isn't the case. Speaking of vulnerability serving the the work, one of the intentions that I like to do in this podcast is you know taking someone who is as thoughtful and successful as you are and recognizing that a common aspect of our humanity is that is just that we tell ourselves stories and we get in our own way and we tell ourselves these self-limiting stories that might help us feel safe but they keep us from having our impact. They keep us very small. And so what I would love, Nigel, is if you would share what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself sometimes and when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader? I guess I've learned uh, that my two default personality types are, and these are pretty common, one is to be an achiever And the second is to be a pleaser. These are sort of personality types that show up at times of stress. And I I guess the the self-limiting narratives around that are, I'll never personally accomplish enough to satisfy my father, (laughs) and I'll never completely fit in or integrate myself. And I guess with age and with coaching, I've come to understand how experiences develop belief systems and biases. So with the, with the achievement thing, that just came with old world parents that were very achievement focused, and there wasn't that much attaboy Nigel. And then the pleaser thing, I think, goes back to immigrating to North America, first Canada from the Middle East, not quite fitting in and needing to find a way to be part of the tribe, to be cool, to fit in. So Now, those are biases and belief systems that at a young age actually probably are good. They help you get through tough situations. You get through college. You develop a peer support group. You fit in. But 
often it can be personally or professionally limiting as you get older. It may interfere with your personal life at home. <laughs> or being a pleaser, being agreeable all the time can, can start to weigh down on you. So I think, and I don't have a fancy answer, I think it's just just much greater awareness, A, of when I'm in my D game rather than in my A game and what's going on. Thank you for that. And what I so appreciate about what you shared is one, those are such common stories. I think that I will say every physician that I coach has some version of those. I think there might be some selection bias going into medicine about the achievement piece. And then with the achievement, sometimes people pleasing goes with it, which is a tough combo to have. But sometimes other people, it's a perfectionist or control thing or whatever. But the achievement definitely served well, serves you well to get through school, serves you well to get through medical school. But to your point, it has a cost. And I think that whatever our self-limiting story is, I appreciate you talking about it served us well at some point because these were all created in childhood and they got us to a point in life where they did help us and maybe they were necessary. But I think as I listen to you, the question that I always come back to is, is that story still serving me now? Or the, the phraseology that I'll use is, okay, I know that story was created in the first 15, 16 years of my life. So I just like to pick my 10 year old self because it's easy. And I'll be like, okay would I let my 10-year-old self, whatever, lead this coaching call right now? Would I let my 10-year-old self make this decision or drive the car? And for whatever that's worth, I always go back to, is this story still serving me or is it getting in my way of these goals many decades ago? You're absolutely right. So if you're not achievement focused or agreeable or a pleaser, you're not going to survive. You're not going to get the best residency spots. If you do and you're not agreeable, that's not going to do you well when you apply for jobs. So yeah, these things come with an upside. I think as you become a leader, actually Malcolm Gladwell talks about traits of very successful leaders. And one of the, I can't remember two of the other traits, but one of the important traits is the willingness to be disagreeable. And he doesn't use disagreeable in a, just being a jerk, but to sometimes say, hey, I think I'm going to go in a different direction here. So I agree with you. So I want to transition to our quick question segment, if you're game. This worries me. I'm not very good at quick questions, Rosie, but I'll try my best. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's, there's no right or wrong answer, right? It's so here we go. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Just being who you really are, being vulnerable. Just really being the, the Nigel Gearbro that, that you are at home and bringing that to work. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? I talked about A games and, uh, and D games. And there are days where, many days that we're in our D games. I've really tried to do a better job of just recognizing, hey, Nigel, you're in your D game. And that's not helping anybody at work, anybody I'm around, and try and transition more quickly to the A game. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? I like to dance. What's your favorite type of dancing? I love to dance. So I know, yay. I just like dancing to alternative music. You know, Mardi Gras was just so amazing. And the, um, the ability to, uh, the collective effervescence, actually, as Adam Grant talks about, just being able to uh, connect, to dance and, and feel joy. So I like to dance. 
probably a, a not as helpful thing is I have this incredible capacity to watch football, which does not often do me well at home. Well, Nigel, if the time comes we get to meet in person, we are having a dance party, 100%. So I love dancing. All right. What is your favorite go-to movie? There are movies that come on when you're just scrolling through channels. It's funny that when you see them, you just stop scrolling, even though you've seen them 20 times. And for some reason, A Few Good Men, I just, when I see that, I just stop and wait for my favorite lines. Oh my, I love that. You can't handle uh, the, I truth. Want the truth. <laughs> right? Yeah, that, I just love the, the Godfather <laughs> for some reason. I just like, I'm scrolling. I've probably seen The Godfather and The Godfather 2 30 times. Those are probably. Is that amazing? You just stop and you're like, yep, I know what's going to happen, but I got to watch it again. <laughs> and another movie that just uplifts me is, is another Jack Nicholson movie, but it, as good as it gets. It was just, I, I thought, very heartwarming. What's your go-to song? I guess Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order. That's a song from the 80s. Not the substance of the, of just the beat and the, it brings out the, my interest in dancing. I say something lightly because it doesn't have to be a thing, but what's something you can't live without? Nice clothes and nice shoes. That was part of the, uh, Rosie, by the way, of being a pleaser and fitting in when I was young is when you thought that you looked different from everybody else, how do you fit in? And so I think I, at an early age, became almost too focused on presentation. So I've tried to let that go. But What is something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? I think, so my two youngest are still, are 16 and 12, and they're boys. And I'm just waiting for the moment that my 16-year-old won't hug me because he's too cool for school. But he still says every day, I love you, Daddy. I don't know if that's going to be around next year or the year after, but gosh, I love that. Oh, yeah, that's the best. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I am grateful for the experience of the last two weeks and how that just really elevated my spirits and, and elevated the just spirit of this community that's needed it so badly. Many communities have been hit hard by the pandemic. New Orleans has got to be a top three, but also Ida. And the it is a, a community that I would have thought would struggle the most with social distancing when you think about people in New Orleans. And I, I think we've been a great community in respecting roles, but Mardi Gras was a time to come together and we really did. And so I always like to close with this question. Nigel, if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everybody to show up as a leader, what would that be? Ask the question to those that report to you, can you help me? Can you help me be a better leader? Yeah. And that gets part to the vulnerability thing, the engagement thing. I think there's no better way to bring a team together than, than have a leader be willing to really ask for help and show their warts. Nigel, I want to thank you for who you're being as a leader, what you're doing for your community in New Orleans, what you're doing for the healthcare community, and just really raising a voice for the importance of destigmatizing mental health, destigmatizing emotional well-being issues, and just, yeah, it's, I just appreciate everything that you're doing. So just thank you so much. Thank you. This is fun, Rosie. Thank you for doing it. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com and of course, hit that follow button.